Uh, good evening, everyone. I don't think uh, I'm here. Oh, okay, there you go. I thought I was going deaf. It might be. Yes, uh, your microphone snake was showing up, but it was um, like there was no words coming out. So I was like, oh man, have I screwed up my audio settings all over again? Oh, damn. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Amazing. <laughs> Sometimes. Nothing I love more than yeah. audio settings, especially when I have like three <clears throat> screens that all have their, like it, it all thinks that they are individual like speakers and stuff. It's a nightmare. It's a goddamn nightmare. How it is. Alrighty. Well, it's kind of nice. Hey, what's up? Quiet on the server tonight, which is excellent. Yeah, it's means hardly some, quiet. Means that someone might be able to get a word in edgeways, uh, especially for, for a lockdown time. I think it's uploaded the video just a little bit earlier tonight, so maybe that's why. Tonight? What do you mean? It's, uh, it's four in the afternoon? No. Oh, yeah. I know. You're in Australia. It's actually in the morning you know. here for me, so. It's yeah, it's, the morning, isn't yeah. it like seven in the morning for you, or? Nope, it's no, one a.m. Yeah. One a.m. Yeah. That's that's how it is. It's ten o'clock in the morning here in the U.S. Oh, in on the East Coast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Jeez. Did you uh, not? Do you not know that? Oh. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I thought it was a little bit earlier. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, he knows it now. Yep, I, think, I, I think the time... I think um, we had a spring forward. Oh, oh my god. god. Holy that was horrifying. Who the, who the fuck just turned on no. like the... They left. They just the left. Jet, <laughs> the jet engine on there. Uh, that was a jet engine last time I checked. That, that, but, was, you know. that was Satan. Anyway, alright. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. we'll, we'll get right into it because um, I do want to get to bed uh, at somewhat of a decent hour. Now, as always, I'm uh, just expecting Captain Locke to write out a, a lovely list of, of things that we're going to talk about in this video yep. um, to guide our conversation and try and keep us on topic. But before I get into any of that, I always just want to make sure that all of you guys are staying inside and staying safe and um, please not doing anything silly and, and all of your loved ones. Currently coughing on random bystanders. So uh, yeah, we'll keep that to an absolute minimum if you if you could. Yeah, I'll try. Yeah, I, I really I, we we really appreciate it. So, um, but yeah, no, look, you know, in all seriousness, guys, I uh, yeah, you know, hope that you and everyone is, is sort of safe around you. But uh, with all that mushy nonsense out of the way, uh, let's discuss Cuba originally, and then of course, if as always, look, if the uh, topic gets a little bit off off uh, the path, off off topic. Uh, that's fine, but let's try to, as much as possible, stay on these points that Captain Locke's put out, at least early on, and then we can kind of go from there. So, um, before we do, does anyone have any questions, comments, concerns, queries about the video? Do they want to say it sucks? Do they want to say it was awesome? Uh, you know, anything in between is all good. You know, I thought it was new good. More history. New, new more history. Yeah, new more history. Yeah, you didn't mention the milk. You didn't mention the milk, um, but you know. No. I liked the image of the beach, like oh, the one that came up five times. It was a good yeah. image. Uh, do you know the joke about the Cuba and the milk? I don't know the joke about the Cuba and the milk. How have I avoided the joke about the Cuba and the milk? Please oh, explain the so joke. Fidel Castro was crazy about milk and dairy production. And, you know, Cuba's not uh, a very good place to, you know, produce, to raise dairy yeah. cows. Uh... Anyway, yeah, he just had a huge, a huge obsession with with milk. Um, he, basically, he basically made a whole new, gen, like a whole new line of. You should cows. just just Google, uh, just uh, or go on YouTube and and search Cuba and milk, and that's you'll find enough videos there. You can uh, watch those as you go to bed tonight. That is so yeah. interesting. <laughs> I can't believe in my entire sort of research uh, campaign on the video. I did not come oh, across, thing. <laughs> come across uh, Cuba's milk. Oh, there we go. Well, look. Uh, bro, bro. Yeah. That's hilarious. So, out there somewhere, there's there's communist cows. Yeah. Yep. Producing, I don't know, commie cheese and commie shakes. It's disgusting. Ah, nah. It's all yep. right. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation that goes around with uh, Cuba. Um... 
because it's easy to, you know, uh, yes, they're capitalists. I mean, not capitalists, they're communists, right? Um, I mean, here in the United States, if you ask anybody what their perception of Cuba is, they're they're like, ah, oh, yes, they're all commies and they all live in poverty and uh, and really they're, all, they're going to really nuke us one day, poverty. right? They're going to nuke us one day. That's <laughs> all yeah, that's well. true, and, uh, and all of that's not true. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, so I mean, obviously, uh, you know, jokes on them. Uh, chances are we'll, we'll all die before that now because you know the world's yep. coming to an end. So. Ha ha, <laughs> wrecked, <laughs> wrecked <clears throat> indeed. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting. There you go. So we've added something more. So, yes, okay, we can add that to the topic of conversation the communist cows, uh, after everything else. Yep. So I think the the really interesting takeaway from all of this is obviously um, you know they they followed uh, a history of a country very similar to a lot of you know effectively Soviet states um, you know they they had their sort of workers uprising out of they sort of came from being you know you know colonies or, or pretty oppressed people and and you know this whole communism business sounded like a, a really good idea uh, but unfortunately maybe it sort of led them a little bit astray. And, you know, they did sort of follow the path very similar to, well, you look at the Soviet Union at large or China or, or North Korea even to this day. Um, but it's kind of in a different place than, than any other country in the world now with its really unusual two-speed economy. So I kind of want to start backwards and focus on that. And uh, you know, we can interject with sort of history. But, uh, of course, you know, we're here to discuss the economics of it. And I think that is just something that is really, really interesting. The idea that uh, anyone that has access directly to American currency uh, is, is the upper class in Cuba. So, uh, I mean, was that something that you guys knew about? Was that something that you'd heard before? Or, um, or anything that's sort of like anyone that can think of a, like a parallel in the modern world outside of Cuba? Yeah, I heard it in Venezuela. A guy told me he was making money selling stuff on like RuneScape or something. <laughs> and if you can make like I don't know twenty bucks on RuneScape, that you're very fucking rich there. Ah, yeah, that's true. The RuneScape economy, uh, and that that that's sort of probably a classic example of it. That any kind of American currency you can get, you're gonna do well with because uh, yeah, of course in Venezuela there's hyperinflation and their their currency is basically worth nothing. Uh, so U.S. dollars have basically, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, become the de facto. Uh, it's become a de facto currency, but uh, there's limitations on that in the sense that they can't control their own currency, and uh, and of course, actually getting US dollars requires exporting stuff to the US normally, but they're not allowed to do that because of the sanctions. So it's become this this um, almost like gold. It's, it's it's really sort of scarce and hard to get and uh, valuable to hold on to. So it's uh, it's a yep. weird kind of uh, weird kind of thing that they've got. I was sort of thinking, like obviously. It's a, it's just present also like in african uh countries or any countries that have where people you know typically don't trust their own currency or they they do but they you know they would prefer to have dollars over um you know their local currency and in the case of some african uh countries and in, in rural communities um you know these dollars and also uh american coins are highly prized uh because you know they're robust uh and, and people will will dry out dollars if the to kind of like reuse them um and uh you know coins uh are effectively very very much exchanged uh around because well they're you can't reproduce them and also they're pretty uh you know solid uh forms like they're pretty reliable yeah um, and it's hard uh, to destroy a coin. yeah absolutely it is hard to destroy uh, a coin much more so than paper and it, it's interesting what we use for currency isn't it captain lock if you see where i might be going with this wait, wait. no don't oh well it's going to be announced soon are we gonna oh well, okay yeah so just, just yeah let's count on it but you should do it at the end ah all right all right there's a big surprise for you guys that stay to the end of the q a stream so uh yes wink wink indeed and, and remember currencies are an interesting thing okay so um we're outside of <clears> that <throat> Um, then I suppose we should um, probably potentially focus on, you know, what we sort of anticipate for the future of, of Cuba. Um, because Ganna over, on, sorry, Ganna over on the YouTube live stream said, uh, are there any future possibilities that Cuba might become a democratic state? Uh, a democratic in the sense of like, you know, a democracy rather than, you know, run by the Democrats. So uh, it's a really sort of 
good question. <laughs> speculation, of course. Nice but... clarification at the end there. Yeah, yeah nice well, clarification. It's important. Yeah, yeah, I know. We'll look, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to cater to our American friendos. So, yeah. I mean, what do you guys think uh, with that? And, and potentially people that are, um, you know, have lived through the history of Cuba. Like, uh, I, I was too young. I, I wasn't even alive in the time of the Soviet Union. Um, so it's not something that I'd necessarily sort of witness them at their full force or see yeah. them through a sort of transition in my lifetime from, you know, what they were to what they are today. And, and that helps you extrapolate what they will be in the future, uh, potentially someone in America because they sort of have it, you know, it's a lot more front of mind so, what they sort of anticipate for the future of Cuba. So what you're saying is, are there any boomers in chat, boys? Uh, no. Yeah. No? <laughs> Maybe not. Nope. They're all oh. hunkered in their bunkers. I really wish I had yeah. uh, gone on this uh, trip to Cuba uh, offered by my university because it's a, a chance to, you know, visit the Cuban government and study policy there. Um, and because they were trying to open up relations, it was all part of uh, it was associated with Obama's like uh, goal of opening uh, Cuba up to Americans. Or opening America, or opening America up to Cubans, vice versa. Um, but that all got shut down with uh, Trump administration. So they don't yeah. do that, that program anymore. So close to. And that's another thing uh, to to Americans. What's the actual What's the actual arrangements with with going to Cuba and buying Cuban stuff? You just can't do it, can you? You still can't do it. I, I think yeah, I think you can't. I've I've looked at this a long time ago, like. Uh, 2010 because i found it just absurd like there's this country literally next door and we can't go to it um yeah yeah you can't i'm gonna uh, look it up right now yeah and it, and it can't like um like you can't buy anything from it but but canadians can go to it they can travel freely they can buy stuff from it and anyone else can like i'm an australian i can i can fly to havana if i really really wanted to and that's fine well like good, good amount of the upper class uh, cubans um I've heard, this is a rumor, nothing confirmed, but a small amount of the very upper-class Cubans, uh, instead of going to the U.S., they go to Canada, if they have the opportunity to, just because it pays better and it's a better life. Well, I mean, it uh, certainly would be a lot colder than what they're used to, but uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, uh, like, I'm obviously extremely fortunate that, that I was born in Australia, uh, but I probably... Outside of Australia, I mean, the only other country that I could think of that I would want to have been born in is potentially like Norway or, or Canada uh, as like something over uh, Australia. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, America's great and it is ultimately still the land of opportunity. But man, it's, it, can be, it can be rough if, you, uh, if you're poor. It's also the, the home to like to mega corporations, most mega corporations, if you can classify mega corporations as a thing. Okay, there we go. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Ellie or Billow uh, said you can go to Cuba, but you need to qualify for a very short list of reasons, making it practically impossible. Yeah. So there you go. Um, ooh, I think I think it was Here's, in 2000, uh, 2017, like in January or so, um, uh, President Barack Obama at the time kind of like softened uh, some of the travel mm -hmm. restrictions and, and the embargo. And then, or 2015. And then... Uh, when uh, President Trump was elected, he kind of uh, uh, brought those back. So that's that's my understanding of the whole situation. So if anyone's curious, um, there is I've just posted the um, state.gov, which is the United States, um, like for everything uh, international related. This is where we this is where U.S. citizens go to to look uh, at information. And so. Uh, yeah, at the top, like quick facts, uh, you know, saying uh, tourist traveled, uh, tourist travel to Cuba remains prohibited. You must obtain a license from Department of Treasury, or you must try, or you must fall into one of twelve categories of authorized travel. And then you got to go look at the actual requirements. It doesn't say. Uh, there's a note about currency restrictions for entry, and currency restrictions for exit. You must. Uh, uh, you, uh, the export of Cuban convertible pesos is strictly prohibited, regardless of the amount. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. uh, what about Cuban citizens coming to places like America for reasons like sport or something? Like, I know there's a uh, UFC fighter, you are Romero, who's Cuban. 
I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if any of us are experts on stuff. Talk about right on travel to America. Yeah. So, so if I recall correctly, I remember, you know, I'm a big uh, American soccer fan. I don't know if it was in the past year or maybe past two years, but there was uh, a U.S.-Cuba soccer game. Um, I believe it was supposed to be played on U.S. soil or, you know, I'm not sure. I think it was played on U.S. soil. Um, but there is a history, especially of, of Cuban players coming and playing here and then uh, effectively claiming citizenship here and leaving their soccer team. So there was always a concern on the Cuba side for that. So. Oh, I guess. Yeah, There's another official uh, state, um, U.S. relations with Cuba, which kind of just outlines, uh, you know, some more information. Um, there's another one. Oh, I mean, these and, are all. Uh, El Elior Billow um, had a good question as well. Sorry, I was just looking at the the second part. Uh, if Cuba was, let's say, to, to become democratized. And I'm assuming that sort of means it's, it's fully liberalized, it's, it opens up, it, it embraces a free market fully, and you know it has a, a nice democratic system of elections, and potentially it repairs some of those broken relationships with the United States. How would it compare to, to Mexico? Uh, which is an interesting question. Uh, and obviously we can look at it in the sense of the economy. Um, it would, there would be a few things to sort of unpack here. It would be a nice secondary source of cheap labor close to the continental United States, uh, which is something that Mexico does pretty well off at the moment. You know, it, it's a source of free, cheap, well, sorry, not free labor, cheap labor. Um, free labor. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. No, we don't do that here. Um, yeah. So it would potentially be a competitor to that, but ultimately it probably wouldn't be as large and influential as Mexico, just purely by the virtue of the fact that, one, it doesn't have a hard land border with the United States. So uh, any kind of industry is just a little bit more difficult because it's much easier to transport things by rail and truck than it is by ship and then, you know, ship to truck and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And the other thing is uh, it also doesn't have a, as large a population. But potentially what I would sort of foresee, if that did become a thing, uh, you know, workers in Cuba are very cheap. The country is very poor. Uh, it would potentially be sort of that, that level below Mexico where it can um, sort of really uh, sort of potentially produce a lot of the stuff and maybe even cheap, uh, compete with like Southeast Asian countries. Uh, and because it's much, much closer, uh, it would probably be sort of more competitive. It would be really, really interesting. Uh, and hopefully that would mean that the, it would be able to develop as its own sort of uh, wealthy nation. But, um, you know, well, only time will tell if that could actually happen. But there's absolutely no reason that it, it wouldn't be able to uh, develop just like, you know, uh, a lot of other Southeast Asian nations or, or other you know countries that have sort of, I suppose, shrugged off the shackles of communism. Side note, while people are waiting to digest that, um, in 2000, or remittances from the United States estimated $3.5 billion in 2017 to Cuba. They play an important role in Cuba's state-controlled economy. That's interesting. So um, we can't, I, I don't think uh, people can remit uh, money to America, but from America, you can remit money into Cuba. And it seems that the United States administration allows that. So that's and that's a huge number for remittances. Like that is not something to to scoff at. Uh, that that's that's significant. Uh, e, I don't know. Have we have you ever talked about remittances uh, in your videos? Uh, no, not particularly. No, but you're right. It is. Yeah. That that is relatively significant, especially for a country that doesn't have the greatest of relationships. Yeah, I know that was that was was surprising. But this is. You know, that was for 2017. Uh, I guess I'll go find information more recently. So I had a video question. Excellent. Go ahead. Um, in the video, this is, um, you said that through the schooling system, it convinces them like seizing the means of production. How solid is that like is that confirmed with looking at textbooks and stuff or is it like you can hear it in people from cuba when they talk about schooling or 
Uh, so just, I think there was like a PBS uh, news story a little while ago that I remember seeing. Uh, and it's why I sort of originally thought, oh, I'd potentially look into that as a reason. You know, maybe that's that's why they don't have brain drain. Uh, and look, they do, to a sense, have brain drain, but it's just not nearly as severe as what you would expect for a country of its sort of magnitude, I suppose. Um, and effectively, it went to one of these really prestigious sort of state schools for like the very, very top, you know, the people that were kind of going on to be doctors or, well, they don't really have lawyers in a sense, but, you know, doctors or engineers or very sort of very very smart individuals um and it was sort of like this this state school it was it was labeled something it's actually you know communist school and and they went and interviewed these people and they sort of thought oh we, they actually asked the question it's like oh you're going to be a doctor um how do you feel that you know you're going to be paid just as much as a street sweeper and they te you know they towed the party line very heavily it's just oh yeah that's great because i i'm doing right by my fellow man and you know, I know that even if I get sick or something, the, the, the country is going to look after me, so I'm not fearful for, you know, maybe making sure that I obtain all of this. Uh, and I sort of went on and on and on about it, and I was like, whoa. And it is a very well-documented sort of uh, ideology, you know. Effectively, it's, it's a relatively closed-off state, and it's still relatively totalitarian. Um, so, is there anyone listening to them while they were talking? How do you mean? Like when they gave their answers was anyone who could potentially be very unhappy about their answer ah uh, right yeah well i mean obviously it would be um, good point yeah it would be up there on the the uh it, it would be up there on like pbs so potentially yeah um and you know whether that is something that they maybe believe otherwise in, in behind closed doors uh, who knows? Uh, it's impossible to sort of really tell, but it is still something that, you know, uh, by and large, the aggregate result of people sort of towing that party line is that people start believing it, you know? You know, it, it, it really is a powerful, like, uh, you, you it is. yeah, you don't understand the sort of net effect. And even, even if there's one or two people that are free thinking, the the aggregate effect of this and if, if you've been raised to believe all of this and your peers sort of say all of this and no one says otherwise in public you just sort of say oh, okay well this is this is the way it is and yeah no worries yeah and so when they have the issue of like the doctor versus the doorman at the uh what is the what's the famous uh um the ritz carlton oh, the ritz carlton yeah no, I don't actually nah, whatever it is yeah uh i thought like the ritz carlton that can't be right <laughs> but uh, yeah, in Havana, um, you know, I imagine that people who are entrenched with the, you know, belief of, you know, seizing means of production and that, you know, fair labor and, and fair wages and that kind of stuff kind of look at the doorman as being, ah, you're, you're very capitalist. Like you are, you are a capitalist dog, right? Paid, you're paid by fat bankers or, you know, the yeah. wages whatever whatever Im uh, imagery you want to conjure up to yeah but that's, yeah. that's how i imagine it um yeah and, and, and look i mean in a certain look. sense we have um yeah maybe this idealistic image of, of wealthy people in our society today you know positive or, or negative um it's just the same to, to them but potentially in reverse oh okay uh so that is the pdbs uh thing that i was watching it's still up there on youtube uh and that is like a really clear demonstration of what i was sort of remembering if you go to four minutes uh, they start interviewing uh, like a girl from this selective sort of private school, or not private school, like this selective uh, high-end public school, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of scary to sort of see it. It's like whoa, yeah. I mean, I could, I, I know that there's this happens, um, but I've never actually seen someone so heavily indoctrinated by the the word of a state. It's kind of quite creepy to look. Scar at. Scarier or less scary than North Korea? Oh, it's much less scary than North Korea. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't think any. Very little holds a candle to uh, North Korea. When uh, uh, you're picking up somebody in the background, somebody want to mute right now. Anybody? Yeah, it was uh, Adrid, that that person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's much much less severe than um, North Korea, uh, but it's still there. You know, it's it's something that you know potentially they get away with it a little bit more because they're not as militaristically hostile and they're not quite as closed off. You know, at the end of the day, they are still open for tourism and all that sort of stuff. But uh, you know, it's, it's just still can't be forgotten that it does control the will of the people. It's um, it's an authoritarian state. <laughs>
yeah, I'm not sure about uh, oh, uh, that's a bit sad, isn't it? Jeez, it's interesting. Oh no. Is. Oh, okay. Well, look, uh, while you guys are all thinking of questions, it has to be asked. Boris Johnson. Um, I know this is completely off topic. I'm derailing my own Q and A session, but <laughs> thoughts, opinions, like my goodness gracious, that's got to be the biggest news since we last caught caught up uh, last Q and A session, right? I remember no. I remember uh, reading about it. And I said, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, Excuse my language. Yeah, but... think, like Prince Charles got it as well. Yeah, so, but I mean, Prince Charles is uh, obviously important. He's the next in line to be the head of state of the United Kingdom. But he's a he's a yeah. He he's a like that. He's a figurehead uh, as opposed to someone that actually holds legitimate power. And Boris Johnson's effectively, even though he's not technically the head of state. Uh, he's a world leader. Like he's a he's a person that you know dictates you know uh, policy for the United Kingdom and dictates policy for the United Kingdom during Brexit. Like it could not have happened at a worse time. Uh, what were the markets trading while that news was announced? Ooh. Uh I remember seeing it in the evening, so it wouldn't have been. They wouldn't it have been trading ago, here. Yeah. Uh, okay. I thought it was like last night. I don't even remember. No, I'm pretty sure it was two days ago now. Yeah, well, it's Sunday night for me here. So hang on, let's have a look at the uh, FT, FTSE. Yeah, I think it was Friday night when I heard it on the news. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they would have already they yeah. would have already closed for the day then, I guess. Two, two days ago, yeah. Yeah, and he said he would be like doing conference calls from home, and he'd only go into a hospital like properly if he got any worse. Yeah, and and look, I mean, for the most part, it's well. Look, obviously, I, I you know maybe I don't agree with all of his policies and uh, and all of that sort of stuff, and you know there's probably a lot to disagree with. Maybe there's a lot to agree with as well. But um, for what it is worth, he does seem like a genuinely decent man, um, and you know obviously we wish everyone all the best mm. there. But all of that being said, it's probably it, it's likely that he won't sort of succumb to it. Fortunately. And, you know, you'll get the very best care. And, and even then, the, the death toll is sort of relatively low. But it's got to be unsettling for, for markets um, that the leader of a very, very major economy won't be present during a transition from Brexit and transitioning through this huge market disruption. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. I mean, geez, does anyone want to place bets on if uh, Trump will get it? Can you imagine? Could you imagine? I, 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 I think. Could you? Could you people imagine? were like the People were predicting Trump would get it. When uh, who was the? It was some American politician who got it quite early. Grandpa. Grandpa. Yeah. And people were like, "Oh, what if Trump has it?" And then everyone was just like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like, Trump will be careful as physically possible about not getting the, it. The Rand Paul yeah. case was uh, completely ironic as well because he was uh, i think almost the only one that voted against uh, was the only one uh, yeah pa packages um, yeah and his, uh, and his uh his dad called it a hoax <laughs> ron paul for life <laughs> i think this is just uh just a more divine <laughs> in this. i don't know i don't want to oh yeah and then there's the there was the what you call it iranian like theocratic leader who said that um which part? It was uh, coronavirus was some plague from God, and then he got it. <laughs> mm. and, uh, yeah, that's like the conspiracy. Yeah, that's like the uh, like Voltaire said when there was a huge uh, hurricane or something, and it blew down all the churches, but not the brothels. Like well, that. Congratulations, you've played yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it, churches are. Built a lot taller than brothels, so that's true. But hey, we're not. Are we gonna really analyze that to death? Or are we just gonna? <laughs> we're just gonna make a passing remark at it and say ha ha ha. Uh, but uh, no, 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 no. We're not gonna. We're not gonna talk about brothels and churches. What we're gonna talk about is economic impacts <laughs> of. Um, okay, so predictions. Predictions then for. Uh, what the, do you call it the FTSE or do you call it the FTSE? The English Stock Exchange. Oh, uh, the English. Um... Googling I've heard, it. I've right heard now. it called both, but I don't want to call it the footsie and, and be like laughed at because that sounds like, you know, I'm I'm playing footsies with someone under a table. I think I feel like it's called uh, I feel like it is. Ah well. Uh so I mean predictions, obviously markets open again tomorrow. 
what, what are we what are we expecting? Oh, I'm expecting yeah, and, and it's probably gonna drop a bit, but it shouldn't it shouldn't affect it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's the first thing. Yeah, it was, I don't think he dropped UK. too much. Because, what you call it, like, he's still working. Like, yes, he might have coronavirus, but he's still working. Yeah, he's uh, he's also not the one who makes all the policy decisions on. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's yeah. not like he's... It's not like he's the same as if a, for all ideas. It's not the same as if it's a probably... president gets it. He's the prime minister. He's replaceable. Australia is a testament to that. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, can't can't say much about that. Um, yeah, it is probably worth noting that futures are down five percent, but that's the most they can go down. Um, so they they can't Great. do anything other than that. And uh, once they hit five percent, that's that's it. They, the market has a hard cap on it. So yeah, it's real interesting. Um, oh, okay. Nicholas Alexander had a great question. What is the probability that COVID could severely affect the housing market? Oh boy. So this is particularly juicy for me in Australia. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts in which respective country you come from. So wait, uh, wait. anyone Do that has a strong opinion, speak investment up. Investment property. I am oh. completely not invested in property at all. I rent where I live. Good. Well, in Norway. So you're not negative fine. gearing. Nice. No, I am not negative well, gearing. But I, 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 yeah. that being said, I, I, you know, if properties do do what they say they're going to do, I'll probably buy some up. To be honest, we'll, we'll see. The, the thing is that, for example, in Norway, at least in the more urbanized regions like the capital and some other regions, housing prices are probably going to be more stable because we were already having problems building enough housing for people moving into the city. So. The house prices should have gone up if it wasn't for this corona crisis. It's mostly going to be relatively stable, if not drop like a small percentage. Yeah. Uh, well, what, uh, what, do you ever use FRED, uh, economic research? No. No, you don't. I mean, like, I figured you might not because you're not an American, but uh, do you guys have a housing, uh, what's your uh, housing statistics? Yeah, no, what's your what's your go to for housing statistics? Like your website Core or logic. your source. Just yeah. ping it to me. Cool. Uh, I think you need a membership to, to go on it, but hang on, let's have a look. Now. Yeah, never mind then. There you go. I mean, that's that's what it is. It, it's it's mainly used by banks and financial institutions for valuations and mm -hmm. uh, property reports and things like that. But it, it oh, there you go. Uh, February twenty twenty home value index. So, housing values surged by one point one percent. Oh boy, I feel like they're going to be a very different tune for uh, for March. But we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. Now, um, someone said something about in Norway, like Oslo. Um, and and you know sort of city centres uh, around the even sort of Scandinavian countries that yep. they couldn't keep up with demand. A really yeah. interesting sort of theory that's come to the front of mind is: Do you guys have Airbnbs in Norway? Yeah, right. We do. So here's something that was kind of uh, it was it was really interesting. The sort of flow and effect from this is. Uh, obviously, people that have Airbnb properties, it, it's basically like another form of investment property. You're just renting it out to tenants that are short-term stayers as opposed to long-term stayers. And the idea is obviously it's a little bit more work because you need to find new people every sort of week or month or whatever. Um, but you get a little bit higher returns. You know, people pay more for one week in an Airbnb than they'll pay for one week in a standard rental property. Now, of course, there's a lot of people that have done that because they want to maximize their returns from their rental properties. But unfortunately... Now, all of these rental properties are, you know, you can't rent them out to Airbnb people anymore because nobody can travel. There's complete, you know, travel bans from pretty much every other country in the world. So no one's going to be going on holiday in, in Norway anytime soon. Now, that sort of leaves these people in a bit of a predicament. They still have to pay mortgages on these properties, most likely. But unfortunately, they're not getting any income from the properties. So they have two options. Uh, the first is, well, of three options, I suppose. First is to do nothing, just suck up the losses. And some people will be able to do that if they're independently wealthy or they have an income source outside of these properties. And, you know, that, that's, that's fine, good on them. 
The second option is they can desperately try and put it up for rent. Now, um, at the moment, obviously not a lot of people are looking for, for new rent or anything like that, but maybe they'll get it and maybe they'll have to offer something, you know, 70% of standard rental price for what they would normally charge for that sort of property to a long-term renter. And, you know, that'll incentivize people to actually move into it. Um, but of course, there's going to be a flood of these sort of properties into onto the market from all these ex-Airbnb properties, and that'll, that'll continue to drive down the price. And the other option is they could sell it. Now, no one wants to sell it in a time like this, but either one of those last two options will negatively impact the price if they need to rent it out at something that's below market price for what it is currently. Let's say, let's say they can only charge half rent. So if they were going to get $1,000 a week rent for a really lovely property, they're only getting at $500 a week. Let's say it's a, it's a really beautiful five-bedroom mansion somewhere. Um, now, if everyone does that, they will assume that the average rental yield for a property has dropped by 50%, and that impacts borrowing power. Because when someone goes to an auction, oftentimes if they're looking for an investment property, they'll look at how much they can get in rent from that property and that will impact how much they can borrow. If they can only get 50% of the, the rent that they were previously able to get, it means they might only be able to borrow 50% as much, which means they'll only be able to bid 50% as much. Now this is a massively oversimplified example, but it goes to show how this supply of properties that can't be rented out to these short-term tenants uh, will heavily push down the price of uh, real estate in pretty much any country, especially touristy cities. Uh, so Sydney, you know, has a lot of these Airbnbs, especially around sort of central Sydney areas, um, because it's, you know, it's a really good return on investment. And I imagine it's probably the same in a lot of other cities around the world. Uh, these will be flooding the market and that will sort of, you know, it won't be immediate. The, the housing markets move a lot slower, a lot slower than stock markets because you know there's much lower trading volume but uh, I have no doubt that they will sort of follow suit if anything I, I in Australia at least my prediction is it will probably be more heavily impacted than um, than the stock market will be so I don't know maybe that's just wishful thinking on my end who hopes to you know sort of go and vulture up some properties but yeah we'll we'll see I mean we will see yeah I posted a graph of the daily home value index over the last 28 days in Sydney and Melbourne. Would you look at that, All right. Eh? All right, but I need an explanation for what these metrics are. Change oh, okay. daily home value. So it's literally daily? So, oh, wow. So it peaked in late 2019 and uh, it's been going down. Oh, okay, so you can sort of see where um, Sydney, we got the, the rate cuts, potentially, uh, helping a lot of people get into these properties. I think that's so if we're looking from 2000 and uh, the 11th of of 2019 so uh, november 2019 it's where it starts to sort of go down uh, and then it sort of shoots back up a little bit um, i'm assuming that's probably because of rate cuts and change in servicing rules which means that people could borrow more uh, potentially that sort of pumped a little bit of faith back into the economy uh, and then it's sort of starting to go down again when people are starting to realize how serious this whole thing is but you can see the sort of pretty distinct downward trend as regards to fear of the, the housing crisis there. Oh, sorry, the, the coronavirus crisis there. It's uh, interesting. I don't know. What, what do you guys make of it? Because Sydney's kind of bounced uh, back a lot harder than uh, Melbourne did. I, I just oh, yeah, Melbourne's just, hard Melbourne's just going down. Uh, quick, quick question on this. So is this for the change of the index? So like the daily, it moved by 3%. The index did. Is that... I, I don't want to interpret it like that because that looks that's uh oh wait the, this is the 28 day change okay yeah so they yeah. will probably take the um price of yeah. yeah auction clearance on this on saturdays is normally what they sort of market between i'd imagine that would be the the individual mm -hmm. dot points on that that graph there yeah. i'm dumb i misinterpreted this i now understand exactly what i'm looking at <laughs> okay never mind don't mind me i just had a brain fart so yeah, he's got to wait a bit longer. If it keeps going down, maybe Melbourne and Sydney's housing markets will actually be normal. Yeah, it'll be interesting because um, let me explain to you how negative gearing works. So this is, again, the Australians have hijacked uh, this chat, but uh, that's all right. Um, we'll get back on to Cuba. <laughs> if, if anyone has any questions about Cuba, please just put them in the chat and I will immediately answer those. But until then, uh, let's just let's just sort of 
follow the natural flow of this discussion. So in Australia, the reason that house prices are so expensive is because investment into housing is super pushed by the government. Now, the idea behind this is that investing into housing is good. Uh, it kind of creates its own supply, right? Um, reality, not really. The idea was that they wanted people to build houses so that people could rent more cheaply and, uh, you know, it would make housing more affordable for everyone and that would kind of be a win-win-win all the way around. So they introduced this thing called negative gearing, which is effectively where you're able to claim your own income. So regular salaried income uh, and then expense, property expenses against it. So let's say I am a lawyer. Right. Let's say I'm making $1 million a year. Okay. Lucky me. That's excellent. Now, um, I am paying sort of 50% tax. So at the end of the day, I, I'm only taking home, well, $500,000 out of the million dollars I make. Sounds like a pretty shit deal, right? So what I would do if I'm a, you know, cunning Australian lawyer and investor is I'd go and buy up 10 investment properties. Let's say a collective value of $10 million each. Uh, now, the expenses related to that property, let's say they're $2 million a year, okay? Let's say it's very expensive properties. Let's say the interest rates are 10% and, and the upkeep and the depreciation on those properties works out to be another 10% a year. So I'm paying $2 million in expenses for those properties. Pretty rough, right? Um, oh, sorry, $1 million in expenses. Sorry, I confused myself. So $1 million in expenses, pretty, pretty rough still. Now, what that means is to the government, even though I'm paying 10% expenses on that, and even though I'm earning a million dollars, effectively, I haven't earned any income because it's fully offset. Um, my income is $1 million. I have a million dollars in expenses, which means my effective profit for the year is $0. Now, normally that kind of calculation is exclusively reserved for businesses, but Australia lets you do that even as an individual, even earning a regular salary. So it's really popular for these high income earners to buy up lots and lots of properties and make you know, lots of lots of expenses so that they don't claim tax. Now, genuinely those expenses you do have to actually sort of realize. Uh, now, half of them are non-cash expenses, things like depreciation, obviously, you don't actually pay any money for depreciation. That's not something that's real, but interest expense is a big portion of that. And obviously if you have to pay, you know, 3% interest on $10 million, that's, you know, $300,000 a year. So that, that adds up pretty significantly there as well. And people are happy to sort of pay this and actually make a loss on these properties because the idea is that these properties appreciate in value. If you bought $10 million worth of property uh, in 2000, you know, in 2020, even you know, market conditions sort of maybe ignored, that would easily be worth, you know, 20, 30, $40 million. Now that's fantastic and good on you. Uh, obviously that in that time period, you wouldn't have made that. But when you go and sell these properties, let's say you sell $40 million worth of properties, you don't pay income tax on it, you pay capital gains tax. The capital gains tax on Australian property, if it's something that you own, is 15%. So instead of paying something akin to $20 million over that, that same time period, uh, you paid, well, I don't know, someone, someone do the math for me, probably about $6 million. Um, so it's a very, very effective way of effect, you know, saving uh, and investing in, in money. and. The whole yep. thing is, though, it's not cash flow positive. It's cash flow yep. negative. It has to be. Uh, and that means that if, you know, it's all fine and dandy if property prices keep on going up and keep on going up and, the, you know, the bubble keeps on, you know, bellowing. But uh, as soon as it goes backwards, a lot of people are hold, left holding a lot of debt. Yeah, and it's also really bad for the people who can't buy property because it ends up people just buying property left and right. And as an Australian youth, I can tell you the property market is so hard to buy into. Oh yeah, it's 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 fucking insane. I, I work with mortgages as part of my job, and it's uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, people that are making, you know, huge repayments on their mortgages. It, it's effectively how much can you possibly borrow? Uh, people effectively strapping themselves in for thirty years and. And literally assuming that, look, you know what, for the first 10 years of this mortgage, I'm going to live on beans and rice, but I'm going to own a home. Uh, maybe at the end of that 10 years, I'll extend it back out to 30 years again, and, and then maybe I'll have a little bit more of a life. But it, it's absolutely, unbelievably insane. Um, I mean, I'll put it to you. Um, if you guys want to participate in this, if you don't, 
that's completely fine. Um, but I want to take a poll uh, of people in the chat at the moment. So just type it out. Don't 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 say it um, over the microphone because it'll be impossible to hear. Do me a favor. Um, put your income in a month out in the chat, and then put in how so much. So my monthly income. And then put in your chat on average, how, or yeah, on average, and then put in chat how much you pay in rent or mortgages. If you feel uncomfortable. Uh, putting your actual income, I'm happy for you to put a percentage. What percentage? So what if you live at home, then? If you, if you live at home and your parents don't charge your rent, it would be 0%. Um, let's say if you earn $10,000 a month and you pay $10,000 a month in rent, well, then it would be 100%. Or if you want to do it the other way around, um, then that, that's fine as well. Are, are, is this just like primary residence or is like if, if you have a rental primary, property primary as residence. well? Okay. Wow, we have a lot of people living in their basements. I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. Mine's probably about the oh, 25% of my income. And that's just on yeah. rent. I only, my 5% is uh, to my parents, so I do live with them. It's not even do you live in the, I don't, don't want to say what it is. Don't. Do you live in the, city, uh, the CBD in Sydney? Uh, I live just outside the CBD, so about a 20 minute train ride. Rough. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's insane. And there are plenty, plenty of people doing it far, far tougher than me because, uh, look, to be honest, I, I live in a relatively modest uh, little apartment. Uh, you know, it's, it's very comfortable. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of lucky. I have a very, very good income. But, you know, the, the, you wouldn't want anything much smaller than where I live. Uh, and you know, for a professional couple, uh, it's just fine. But if you had a kid or anything like that, there's no way you could live in the apartment that I live in. Um, and uh, you know, that means that potentially people that do have a kid that have the ex extra expense of um, you know raising a kid and all that sort of stuff, what are they going to do? They either move further and further out from the city uh, to get to somewhere cheaper, or um, you know, they, they suck it up and or they send a much higher proportion of their income. It's not unusual and, you know, people that uh, that I know, you know, friends that spend, you know, 80% of their income on rent a month. Rent, not even rent. Yeah, wow. Bro, if it's a rent, I would, uh, oof. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, yeah, I'm not joking. And, you know, look, obviously they, they do all right money-wise. and um, But, yeah, look, I mean, they might bring home sort of maybe like you know, $4,000 a month and you know, they're spending something like 3000 something on their rent just because that's what they need to do. Yeah. Uh, hopefully they're young, right? They are young, yeah. I mean, okay, uh, good. That is something, but, but then it's still... That is a uns that's an unsustainable, uh, you know, life. Uh, you know, maybe a year or two at most. Uh, hoping nothing goes wrong during that time, or if hopefully you could like fall back with the, uh, or have like parents support or you know friends support uh, to kind of get you through, you know, uh, let's say in that in that kind of situation, if you have like that high of rent, like that's where all your income is going to, like eighty percent. Um, I mean, like you're gonna have no savings. You're gonna have you're gonna be like so cash trapped when it comes to eating and. Uh, you know, just having other basic amenities. Yeah, yeah that's and, it, be, and it also means, rough. hypothetically, let's say, uh, if you were to immediately become unemployed because, I don't know, coronavirus happened, that means that yeah. your situation gets desperate really fast, um, which is yeah. going to be rough for a lot of Australians because, look, I mean, the 80% is more of the extreme end, um, but there are... I would not be surprised if a majority of Australians are paying more than 50% on their accommodations. You know, between, yeah. um, you know, rent and uh, utilities, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me because electricity is also really expensive in Australia here as well. And incomes are, you know, look, incomes in Sydney are good, but they're not great. It's not a Silicon Valley. It's not a, uh, it's not a New York. It's not a London. Hell, um, even Silicon Valley pay jobs aren't enough to cover rent. Like I was... Looking at a startup, uh, I mean, this was in San Francisco, so just right outside, and you can't afford it. You cannot afford it. You gotta live with other people. Uh, and even if 
you could so I would be paying something like seventy percent uh for for rent. Uh and that but that would be when it, you know starting out. And hopefully, yeah. you know, I can uh you know uh get a raise and all that kind of stuff. Uh fortunately the job didn't come through, which is good because it would have been hell on earth if that had if that had occurred. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean it, it there are people that literally just live on uh you know, live in, in their cars or live on boats and stuff like that around San Francisco just because yeah, property is just unaffordable. It's insane. Yeah. Um, and it, it's and, a, it's almost like maybe maybe you shouldn't move there. Maybe the whole prospect of like you could find a better uh life elsewhere. Like moving yeah, out into the yeah. country and I mean, paying I think, very low rent. And... I think I think a lot of what people do with Silicon Valley is they'll move there for a year or two and they'll either sort of work at a Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, something like that, where they'll make, you know, a shit ton of money. They'll live like an absolute homeless person for those two years. Uh, you know, be it in a van or in a boarding house with 20 other sort of other computer engineers and uh, and then they'll sort of save up that money and they'll tuck it away for retirement. Fingers crossed by that time I've either saved a lot of money or they um, get a job where, you know, suddenly they're making lots and lots of money and maybe they can sort of support themselves in a little bit more of a comfortable living situation. Uh, either way, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy, pretty crazy. So, uh, oh, there you go. I'm hopping to get a transit van and convert it into a home after during uni. Yeah, look, it's insane. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows what all of this will, will mean. Um, obviously, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make in, in San Francisco, there's still opportunity. There are still jobs that pay extremely well that are relatively common. Uh, it's not necessarily the case in, in Australia, though, uh, in Sydney, though. It's just it's not that common. There's a strong finance industry, but it's not London. It's not New York. It's just not quite on the same scale. It's, it's not a Singapore, for example. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. It just sort of feels like the... the uh, property market in Sydney is not held up by any genuine underlying factors, but oh, well, who knows? The, the markets can stay solvent, uh, sort of stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I love yep. Owen with his uh, with his Bill Ackman little picture there. I'm I'm secretly hoping that he is the real Bill Ackman and and he can employ me at Pershing Square Capital so I can <laughs> can be a hedge fund, uh, you know. Trader. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, please. Wouldn't that be great? He's just scouting for people. That's all he's <laughs> yeah. doing. Yeah, he's this, uh, this, this is whole this whole going plan around the internet. At last, yeah. oh no, his E's whole plan is you know become uh, moderately famous with a large following on online, uh, so that he can go work wherever he wants. Are, are you going to crowdfund a hedge fund where we all invest, right, E? Oh yeah, well I mean, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. sure, sure, yeah, two yeah. and two and two and twenty. Yeah, right? yeah. No, no, my real game plan, yeah. my real game plan is to get enough of a clout, enough influence that I can determine uh, the market for for companies, and you know, so I can, you know, short uh, Tesla and, and then make a video where I talk shit about Tesla, and then it you know tanks, and then I make a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> bro, that's so Backhands. smart. You you have all that clout to throw around. I was I was gonna say Bill Ackman's now getting all this praise because of the move where he made you know like I think what a billion dollars by taking a short position in the was, past couple of weeks. I think it was I think it was two point seven billion dollars off a twenty seven million right. dollar position. And and everybody is forgetting ah, his uh, his his Herbalife his uh, his kind of Herbalife flop that he uh, that he had. You know, it, was, well, it was a good trade. Well, I mean, the idea of hedge funds is that they're not there to to bet on the market. They're they're something that acts independently of market movement so they take different types of risks they're not exposed to market risk they're exposed to you know some other type of, of risk and, and look let's say in Herbalife effectively what they were hoping for is is you know uh, sovereign risk you know they effectively wanted uh, the United States government to swoop in and say oh yep you're a pyramid scheme uh, and that's God I was hoping for that so much as well yeah, yeah and I mean look it uh, and, you know it wasn't the case and <laughs> Oh, pick up, sorry. Even though I probably had a pretty good, uh, a pretty good defense for it, the whole idea of a hedge fund is that uh, if you want to track the market, if you want to track market performance, go buy a Vanguard exchange traded fund. Uh, but if you want something that potentially moves independently of the market, that's when you start looking into hedge funds. Yeah. Um, I've actually made a video that is in reserve on on how hedge funds work. 
Uh, it's really interesting. But the idea is that wealthy people, so let's take an example like right now, okay? Um, let's take some, let's say you're someone that's very, very wealthy. You have a successful, I don't know, IT company or something like that. that you know, maybe so has none of us. Yeah, maybe has four or 500 employees and, and you know, you've got a net worth of, let's say, $200 million. Lucky you. Now, you want to invest some of that money. Now, uh, you know, let's say half of your net worth is tied up in um, that company and half of your net worth is in cash after, let's say, you sold off a 20% stake to some investment corporation. You know, lucky you, okay? So you've got $100 million in cash. Now, what you're going to do? Uh, do you want to put it into the market? Sure, you know, you'll get some decent returns, hopefully, you know, recent weeks ignored. Uh, or you can put it into a hedge fund. Now, hedge funds actually seem like a pretty unattractive option. A lot of you guys will know, I don't know if you sort of are up to speed with it, but most hedge funds, you know, on average, don't actually outperform the market. They're terrible. Some, they... some hedge funds do better than market returns and, you know, they've got a bit of a history and some do worse. Uh, but the average is sort of around, they kind of form a median around market returns and it effectively kind of looks like luck, right? Where, yep. you know, they're really not sort of out competing the market. They're just getting lucky. And on top of that, you are charged, some of these companies charge horrendous fees. You know, a two and 20 means that 2% of your assets under management are charged every year uh, and 20% of how much they outperform the market. So if you're investing $100 million, you're pissing away $2 million every single year just for them to manage your money. So why on earth would you do it? This is why you would do it. The reason is, is because they don't necessarily match market returns. So what that would mean is let's say that we're in a position like we are today. The general market is down horrendously. You know, We're down over 30% from peak. Uh, and that would be really, really bad. Now, if you're in a hedge fund, they might not necessarily be directly exposed to market risk. They would have taken out long positions and short positions, and you know maybe they're exposed to something like, uh, you know, Herbalife being called a pyramid scheme, or maybe they're exposed to some other bizarre stock out there, or maybe it's some kind of weird future on, I don't know, toilet paper. Uh, who knows? They they expose themselves to different kinds of risks, and what that means is that hopefully. Even though the world economy is doing badly, they might not be doing badly. They're independent. They, they act independently of the greater market. Uh, and because of that, it means that in a situation like this, you don't necessarily have shit returns during a time of crisis. So if hypothetically your IT company was struggling because none of your IT consultants could go to visit people because companies are shut down and people are working from home and all that sort of stuff, uh, and let's say you need to pump $20 million into, into your company to keep it afloat during this trying time. You aren't forced to sell your asset position while the market's at the bottom. You can take it out of the hedge fund and you know hopefully it's either doing average or above average or if it's lower, it's not sort of lower at the same kind of market rate is lower uh, and you can put it in there. So you're not forced to sell out at the bottom of the market to keep your business afloat. So there is... Uh, a little bit to be said for having something that kind of does its own thing and walks its own path in life so that you can you know, look after a business or, or take cash out at a time where it's not all going to be directly exposed to the market. I've done a terrible job of explaining that. I do a lot better job in the yeah. video, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah, there's also uh, you know, people who invest in hedge funds um, you know, do so for a very particular reason. Uh, and that reason is mostly lost on your average person. Um, there are tax advantages and, and lots of stuff. Tax yeah. advantages, and there's also just the what they do themselves, like the hedge funds, how they operate. Um, you kind of have to have you know knowledge exactly of like what's going on, um, and you know hedge funds are like try to uh, you know recruit, not recruit uh, you know do advertising for not advertise what is it solicit uh, these you know large institutions or wealthy clients that kind of stuff and they try to educate them on what they're doing uh, for, but for the most part you know your average person won't be one of their clients so your average person kind of just looks at that and being like I have no idea what's going on like with these and hedge funds the average um, person can't be one of their clients yes, to invest into a yeah, hedge fund the average person, no. you have to be considered a sophisticated investor uh, now, a sophisticated exactly. investor is someone that earns over 250,000 US dollars a year in the United States. It's different for different countries. Um, but the other thing is, look, I mean, that, that takes out a large majority of the US population. 
Um, but the other thing is uh, it's not worth it for hedge funds because of the extremely complicated way that investor yep. ownership is structured. It's not worth it for them to pay the lawyers and the solicitors and the, uh, the accountants to basically write up um, the documents for anything less than an investment of $10 million. And that's a fair yep. minimum. You know, normally, if you're investing in a hedge fund, you're, you're putting in about 50 to $100 million. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy stuff. But yep. uh, all that and is to say... And the hedge funds are also selective of who their clients are because some hedge funds just don't want a particular brand of client. They don't want a client who is, you know, uh, for instance, um, a scaredy cat. You know, they yeah. want a client who's kind of like understands that, um, you know, what they're doing uh, and that sometimes you, they'll be moving... They'll, they'll take actions that seem to be not in the in, in interests of the investor. Yeah, yeah um, and I don't want just, just because they're in their it's it's just part of their overall strategy, and it's not because they're you know trying to move against the investor. It's just because that's just what's going on yeah. at the moment at this time. Like um, we saw, you saw it. Uh, the Big Short is a great example. I mean, it's a fantastic movie. I hope most of you guys have seen it. If not, go and watch it. It's a great example of it. So Dr. Mike Burry is basically running a hedge fund, uh, a very, very small hedge fund by the looks of it, and he has Lawrence, who is, is obviously one of his primary investors. Uh, now, the, the whole complication of this entire story is based around the fact that Lawrence is one of his major investors and, and wants to pull his money out of the fund. And if he does pull his money out of the fund, well, the, the whole position is going to be ruined. He'll, he'll go bankrupt. And he can't keep the short going. Yeah, and he can't keep the short going. And that's why hedge funds are so selective with who they do business with because they don't want Lawrence's. They don't want people that are going to be like, yeah, yeah you're going to get my money out right now. They want people that are going to be basically ride or die because uh, you know a lot of their plans and a lot of their movements, a lot of their positions depend on the fact that people are going to stick with it and, and trust them. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting thing. All right. So, uh, we got a little bit off topic. I think we talked about Cuba for a grand total of 15 minutes. But I have uh, an announcement to make before I go to bed. Um, so, to all of you who are on the Discord server, you are uh, sort of cordially invited, I suppose. Um, and with further announcements to, to come. So, uh, I'm inviting you all to be involved in a somewhat of a social economic experiment uh, that I will be documenting to make a, a feature-length documentary hopefully in 12 months time from now what we are oh, probably longer. what we are planning to do is to model a society that exists without cash uh, so effectively a cashless society now there not in real life there has been no real tangible example of a proper functioning cashless society in, in the modern world, or at least not in the capacity that we could easily study. Uh, you know, outside of communes like, let's say, the Amish, uh, outside of, of institutions that are completely shut off from outside society. Now, we want you guys to be involved in this experiment because effectively it is a human experiment. Um, economics is the study of human behavior and it all means nothing unless we can actually get people that genuinely sort of care i suppose uh about you know benefiting themselves now we're not asking you to to come and live on a farm disconnected from all of human society what we are going to do is run the experiment in eve online so for those of you who haven't seen the video EVE Online is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. It's very similar to, let's say, World of Warcraft or, um, I don't know, what are other sort of, you know, maybe Final Fantasy, whatever it is these days. Um, the idea is it's one big server and it can sort of, uh, you know, encompass it. Now, a lot of people that may have played EVE Online or, or sort of are wise to the fact will know um, that... EVE Online is, uh, does have cash. It has ISK, I-S-K. Uh, which is a currency within the game. But what we are planning on doing is starting a, an institution within the game that is going to completely ban the use of ISK as a currency. So effectively, it's going to originate as a bartering society, and we're going to study the results. Uh, we're going to take an extremely hands-off approach to how the economy develops. Um, I'm going to exist to just sort of overlook and, and study and, and sort of see how this sort of plays out. Uh, but the more people that we have contributing, the better the results will be. Uh, at the end of the day, if we only have 12 people, it's probably not going to be much of a society. Uh, it's going to be more of a, 
I don't know, a clan, and that's that's no interesting for, for anyone. So the more people we can get, the better. Uh, Captain Locke will probably take a leadership role. Uh, who actually does end up as leaders? We're going to hold democratic elections for it. So that'll add an extra layer of complexity. To people that don't have EVE Online, it's easy to download. You can play for free. Um, so there's no reason to, to, to be completely locked out of it. Uh, I'm sure Captain Locke will be able to organize uh, buddy invite codes for people as well um, that he can sort of look at. I think it gives you an extra million skill points or something within the game, so that's that's really good. Um, and it's just going to be something that's quite different, I suppose. Maybe the results will be really interesting. Maybe the results will be really boring. At the end of the day, it is going to be something that's going to take place over the course of a year. So I fully expect a lot of people will start and then not finish and hopefully join us halfway through. Who knows? Uh, there will be ebbs and flows, but at the end of the day, I hope that I will be able to create this really, really interesting documentary that um, sort of looks into this issue far beyond, um, you know, just a surface level a video game uh, and actually sort of looks at the human aspect of it. Uh, I will be partnering with um, a professor at a local university that also uh, that specializes uh, in social economics. So that will be interesting. Uh, he will also sort of be assisting with, you know, discerning some of the information that we ascertain from it. Uh, but outside of that, look, it is an open invitation. Um, keep posted. We uh, do have the, the corporation forms and things like that. We're still looking for a home system. Uh, it's all going to, to sort of start and kick off uh, probably within the next week. It's an ideal time, I suppose, while half the world's in lockdown and we've got nothing better to do but play video games. Um, but it will be it will be something really interesting. So I hope um, you know any of you that are interested, uh, you know, come and come and participate because I think it'll be, if nothing else, maybe a little bit of fun. All right, I posted a recruit a friend um, link. Uh, e, e uh, I need to talk to you for a brief second. Jump down to exclusive. Are you yep. good with that? Sounds right. good. Other than that, um, oh, yes, that's a good question as well. Uh, so the people that are up to speed with it, originally it is going to start in the high security space with the intention that we will move and claim our own sovereign territory uh, once the little cashless society is powerful enough to actually uh, defend our own sovereign space. Cool beans. All right, I All right. will uh, love you and leave you guys. Uh, that's the end of the stream for tonight. So thanks all, uh, and apologies for the little tangent at the end. I just wanted to be the first to kind of announce it to you all. Uh, outside of that, um, thanks for participating. I hope you enjoyed the video, and I will see you all soon. Good night. Next time.